Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. General Eisenhower, famous for his leadership, he would demonstrate throughout his life the art of leadership. And uh, many times he would give examples of this. And so one of the examples that he would give was with a simple piece of string. He would take the string and he would put the string on the table and he would say, pull it and it will follow you wherever you wish. Push it and it will go nowhere at all. It's just that way when it comes to leading people. They need to follow a person who is leading them by example. At another time, he made the following statement about leadership. He said, you do not lead by hitting people over the head. That's assault, not leadership. (laughs) It's also practical, right? So what I want you to observe with me tonight in this text is this truth, that faithful elders, pastors, point believers to the word, and faithful believers follow. Faithful elders point people to the word, and faithful believers follow. Now remember the context of this entire book. Paul is writing to a group of people, they've been scattered, and they are in some respects facing opposition, Paul describes that throughout as suffering, and or Peter describes that as suffering. And he does so here even as he begins in verse 1. He says, hey, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Jesus, to which he has brought them back to throughout the book and said, hey, remember, Jesus suffered, and because Jesus suffered, you're going to make it as well. Jesus came out on the other side of this, so can you. And so part of the challenge is, despite the reality that you're suffering, endure Continue on, keep on, persevere in faith even while you suffer. Even at times as you suffer persecution, you suffer unjustly. Well, now what Peter's going to do is he's going to shift to pastors, to the elders that are leading this body of believers, and he is going to address them Pointedly, And the focus for them throughout is going to be simply this, that elders should not draw back from shepherding these people, from leading them, from guiding them, from pointing them to Jesus, even as they are being targeted, even as they are facing opposition and persecution. In the face of that, don't pull back. Don't shy away. Don't let up on your duty to shepherd the flock of God. And he's going to kind of lay that out, explaining first to us, in some respects, what it is to be an elder, what that looks like, what that's about, the focus of it, and then the response that's supposed to come. So first thing that I want you to observe with me is the description of a pastor. What is the biblical description of a pastor? Now, what's interesting is there are three words that are used for that role, that 
office throughout the New Testament. All three occur in this text. All three happen here. Now, one's in a verbal form, but all three of those words happen here. So this text is very important for us in defining, understanding what is the role of a pastor, elder? What does he do? And what does that ultimately look like, right? And we'll talk a little bit about some aspects of all of that here in a second. But what's his conduct? What motivates him to serve the congregation? What does that look like? Now, a couple of things are important. First of all, it's important for us to understand the idea of an elder. What is an elder? What does that mean? Well, a couple of things throughout our New Testament, that word is used in a variety of ways. First, it's used to describe the elders of Israel. In Acts 23, um, it's used that way. It says, they went to the chief priest and elders. So this is kind of the leadership structure of the nation of Israel. Chief priests and elders kind of composed this group. Many times we think of them as the Sanhedrin, the group we talked about this morning. But at times they're called the elders, right? Second, an elder at times is used to describe someone who is just an older person. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul uses it this way. He says, do not rebuke an older man. Depending on your translation, it actually says an elder. Do not rebuke an elder, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. So Paul is specifically here addressing younger pastor Timothy, and he's saying, as you engage an older man, an elder, you do it in a certain way. You do it differently than you do a younger man in the congregation. You engage them as a brother, but an elder, you engage him as a father with respect, right? Appropriately, with, with care. So the word is used in those two contexts. The third context is the elder or pastor, leader of the church. Now, one of the things that I want us to understand about this word is, uh, and we'll talk more about this in a second, but it is first describing a pastor. Now, many times in a text like 1 Peter, he says, I exhort the elders, all right? So we'll talk about that plural word there and a plurality of elders. We'll talk about that in a moment. First, what is this? What is an elder, this description of elder as a pastor? Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul, again, writing to young pastor Titus. He is shepherding this group, this body that's formed on the island of Crete. And Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, Paul similarly recorded in Acts, again, Luke is writing there, but he's recording the interaction of Paul with the elders at Ephesus. And he tells us in Acts 20, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And then he engages with them for a large section of Acts 20. One of the things that he says to them, Acts 20, verse 28, and following down to verse 32, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, 
Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after him. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you with tears. That's one of the roles of a pastor is to admonish, to challenge, exhort God's people, right? We need to be careful of certain things. We need to avoid certain things. We need to do certain things. So this is part of the role. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the focus of this particular word, this particular aspect of the office of a pastor is spiritual guidance and in some respects, administration. Now, I want to, for half a second, pull back, uh, and I want to explain to you a reality, because this impacts our church potentially in the future. Now, when in the future, I, I can't say. But it does impact our uh, uh, church potentially in the future. There is, and has been for many years, a growing trend within uh, the North American church especially, a trend towards a plurality of elders. Now, a couple of things. First of all, it's always important that we define our terms. What does a plurality of elders mean? Some churches, they have a plurality of elders and they may have 30 or 40 elders. Okay. Some churches, they have a plurality of elders and they have two or they have three. So that plurality of elders can be different. The mindset, the reasoning for that comes from the word elders. Many times when we see it, we see it in the plural form. Some have said we, it, we never see it outside of the plural form. I don't know that that's true, and I didn't do a word study to see if it's true. However, what I do want to observe is many times it's in the context as it is here in 1 Peter 5. So when Peter writes and he says, I exhort the elders among you. So what I want you to remember, at least in my mind, the perception of the first century church, it was never a mega church. We never have a scenario where we've got 12,000 people meeting on 10 campuses spread across a large American city, right? And we need a plurality of guys to kind of manage them. Folks, that's not what's going on. The first century ch church looked a whole lot more like Graceway, right? We got 40 people, 50 people. Now, how many elders do we need to effectively manage, teach 40, 50, 60, 70 people, right? So part of that is what we're evaluating. Um, when we look at a text like this, when you look at the text in Titus, and again, I'll read it to you. He says, this is why I left you in Titus, so, or in Crete, excuse me, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. Now think that through. He's using elders, and he's also saying in every town. So again, we, we got to use some reasoning here. But if we have multiple churches in different towns, how would we have a singular elder unless he was a circuit rider? You see what I'm saying? And that has happened in the past as well. There are a variety of ways to do this. But what I want us to understand is 
The biblical model, I think, is a pastor, an elder, who is compensated for his work in the word. 1 Timothy 5 talks about that. Now, the trend today is moving towards a plurality of elders, several of which are composed of what is called lay elders. The lay elders function in some respects just as kind of an extension of the board, right? Now, if, if, if an individual is for this model, they would say that's not true. But having had many conversations and done a lot of reading, it actually often is true. I've talked to, I talked to a pastor, and this was many years ago, and he had his board of elders that was sitting there, and they were responsible for hiring a pastor, and believe it or not, I was in the midst of that process, and I was talking to them. And I said, you know, one of my concerns is over your, um, your plurality of elders. I said, you got a room filled with guys there. you got five or six guys there. And I said, this is my question to you, pastor. How many of those men can get up and teach the congregation on Sunday? And the pastor said, oh, oh no, 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 that, that's not how they function. Okay, here's the thing. I, I don't want to be picky, but if they can't get up and, and teach the congregation, that's what this is. That's what this is. And so, again, had another conversation with another pastor not all that long ago. And frankly, his elders function largely, what I think is, in a deacon role. They're kind of over helping make decisions, and they kind of all make those decisions together. And, and folks, in truth, there's value in that. There's value in having the humility to understand, I don't know everything. I don't know what's best about everything. I don't know the best decision to make. However, we can do that in, in a myriad of ways. We can set up a myriad of, 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 of protections, guards, against an individual grabbing hold of something and saying, this is mine and I'm going to do with it what I please and nobody else can do anything about that. The means of protection is not to say, okay, we're going to arbitrarily set up this thing called a plurality, when truthfully, when you look at the, the bulk of these, individuals are coming together. The first century, they don't have a board of elders that are working together. Truthfully, the church functioned together. So the church at Crete, they, they got along, you know? Now, that's another foreign concept to us today, <laughs> right? But they, they weren't in competition. They weren't at each other's throat. So this elder and this one down the street, there was a rapport there. There was a relationship there. And we know in some ways that's how it functioned in Ephesus, even as uh, Timothy goes to Ephesus to engage those elders. Paul says, listen, you need to make sure that these individual guys aren't leading their individual group or house church astray, okay? So what we have to be careful of is perception. So the reason, you, you may say, why, why did you jump off on this hobby horse? Well, it, it applies to us uh, in two ways. Number one, there will come a day, Lord willing, by God's grace, we'll hire another elder. We'll hire another pastor. But listen to me, the requirements are the same. We're looking for somebody that, heaven forbid, if I croak tomorrow, they might not be the answer for pastor going forward, but there's no qualms about 
well, they'll just step right in. And for a period of time, they'll keep things functioning until we find either ask them to fill that role or we find somebody else to fill that role. But that's the requirement. The requirement of an elder, I think, I think scripturally, the requirement of an elder is this is one who's gifted to stand before the congregation and explain God's word. That's the goal. If your requirement is not that, I'm not judging. I just, I don't think that fits the biblical model, okay? Now, having said that, I do think we can have a plurality of elders. You know what that is? It's more than one pastor, right? We have more than one pastor. But in order for that to happen, that individual fits the qualifications. The other piece that I think can be very confusing is the idea that the elder-ish board kind of functions as this co-equal unity among, among the group. Folks, in truth, there is no, nothing leadership-oriented that God has set up where there wasn't kind of a final voice that said, okay, we got to do this, right? So no matter how we look at this, to have a group that functions as equals and really outside of the group being able to link up together somehow and create a unity to move forward, you can't ever move. There's no leadership. God did not design anything else that way. Folks, we have leaders in government. We have leaders in the home. Think about it. We have leaders in the home. God took two people when you put them together and he put one in charge to kind of make the final call, right? Now, that doesn't mean that you lord it over. We'll talk about that in a minute. It doesn't mean I'm the boss and who cares about you. No, part of leadership is the way Jesus led. So I'm actually tasked as a leader, I'm tasked with looking out for you and what's best for you and what would best serve you and how can you best be ministered to. Some of that is the mindset of a leader. And folks, in truth, what's hard for us with leadership at times is we've seen abuses. So when we look at an abuse, we say, oh, that's bad. We got to change this whole process. Or we have to deny the validity or usefulness or necessity of leadership. Folks, that's not right. God didn't set it up that way. Uh, The Godhead, there's a submission um, uh, in the Godhead themselves. Jesus yields to the will of the Father. Certainly he did in his entirety of his earthly life. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. So that is not out of bounds or abnormal, right? Again, that doesn't give leaders a license. It also doesn't give followers a license, right? The goal isn't for all of us to try and keep each other in line. The goal is truly for us to engage one another in humility, genuine care, love, looking out for one another. Folks, if we engage that way, we don't have to fight for turf, right? And that's critical that we understand that. So if you have questions on that elder piece, come chat with me, all right? Uh, I would love to talk about that more, as most of you can imagine. My, our leadership has endured many conversations along those lines, because it is important. 
And there are a myriad of folks that you might bring in at some point as a candidate for pastor that would say, hey, I want to turn this into that. Well, the truth is you need to understand the biblical, I think, model before you have that conversation, right? Okay, second, and this is important to note, several descriptions that Peter gives about himself and elders. Look at what he says in that first verse. He says, first, I'm a fellow elder. Now, I, I, I got to be honest with you. I've often thought in my own mind, in, as I think about being a pastor, how awesome would it have been to be like Peter? Right? How, how amazing would that have been? But here's the piece that I want you to see. Peter makes a connection with these elders who have been scattered. He says, I'm like you. I'm a fellow elder. There's a connection there, even with the apostles, those that knew Jesus. And look at the second thing he says. He says this over and over again in Acts. He's also a witness. He's a witness to the sufferings of Jesus. So he connects himself and he connects these elders to be witnesses of the sufferings of Jesus as well. Now, Peter's different in that he's an eyewitness. But in a sense, this is what every pastor is supposed to be testifying to, is the suffering of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the exaltation and the ascension and everything that is connected to Jesus. This is the message, right? We're witnesses of that. Third, he connects to the glory, the glory that's about to be revealed. And he says, We are, I am, you are, we are partakers in this glory. And the glory will happen when Jesus returns. Again, there's a union here. A union with Christ and a union with Peter, a connection with him. The second name, the second description that he gives is that of pastor. If you look at verse 2, he uses the word Shepherding. That is the verbal form of the word for pastor. He says, shepherd God's flock among you. Shepherd them. Now, this term is again used in Acts 20, 28. We read it a moment ago. Uh, but he says again, pay careful attention to yourselves, to the flock in which the Holy Spirit of God has made you an overseer. The word overseer there is shepherd. It's the same Word, even though it's translated differently. So the idea of the word is to lead, to guide, to feed. So in part, the focus of this pastoral or shepherding office is guidance and provision. Now, one of the keys here, one of the things that I think we have to remember is the means by which a pastor guides And provides. I truthfully, folks, I don't have anything real great to give to you, right? But this book has every single thing that you need for your life and godliness. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks as we begin 2 Peter. That's that's the beginning, that's the first chapter. But this is what we need. The Bible is sufficient to meet your need. And I don't know about you. But I hope 
that as we gather and as we engage it, that you walk away every week and say, wow, that was good. I needed that, right? I I hope that that thought hits you because I'll be honest with you, that thought hits me every week before I get here. Wow, I needed that, right? Well, that's where the guidance and provision comes from. Because God's word has the answers you and I need for living our lives today. We need the word. So the shepherding and this guidance comes from, via the word. We need the word. Ephesians uses this word, and and you know the the passage, Ephesians 4, we walked through it a couple times together. He says, and he gave the apostles, and he gave the prophets, and he gave the evangelists, and he gave the shepherds and teachers. Now, what's interesting is he gives four offices. The last one, he gives two words to describe it. The shepherd is described by teaching. It's not five offices. Sometimes you, you may have heard that. People used to say that. It's not five offices. It's four. The last one has two descriptions. And the pastor does his shepherding through teaching. You need the word. The pastor invests in the congregation through the word. This is how it happens. 1 Timothy 2, same thing. Paul says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Preacher is a herald. Teacher. Teacher. This is that word again. So part of the role of pastoring is shepherding. How does shepherding happen? Through the word. It's through teaching. And truthfully, folks, as we engage as a body, the goal, I think, and you may say, but it's really idealistic. It might be, but I do think that's how it works. The way that the church is most effectively led is not by pronouncement. It's by, look at what God says. And then the congregation saying, oh, I see that. Yeah, that's true. We do have to do that. So part of it is, is having us as a body yielded to the word. I want to obey the word. So as we engage the word, if I, when I approach with it, when I'm confronted with the word, I say, oh, I need to fix that. I need to change. I need to adjust. I need to, I need to alter some things the way that I'm doing them. Well, I'm glad to do that. Why? Because I'm yielded to the word. However, if the approach is, well, the pastor says do this and I do it. Well, guess what happens? At some point, the pastor is going to rub you the wrong way. And when that happens, then guess what your thought is? Well, I don't want to do what he says. I don't care what he says, right? I'm not sure that I even like him this week, right? That happens. You say, well, that never happens to me. I'm thankful for that. But just hang on, it probably will, right? If we're committed to obeying the word, that piece kind of can get put to the side, right? That piece, we, we can deal with that piece over here. But we're always committed to the word. And I think that's the role of the pastor. The role of the pastor is to say, look, this is what God says. And here's what I think we do, because this is what God says. What do you think? And by God's grace, the congregation says, yes, I think that's what we're supposed to do. Right. This is the role. And I think it's the way it plays out in the church. The the third one is he gives 
uh, uh, first as a negative, he says, not overseeing out of compulsion. Now that word, that's the third word used for pastor, and it's overseeing. And the word again gives the idea of guidance, oversight, leadership. This is how Jesus is described earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Uh, it says, for he, Jesus, you were straying like sheep. You, there is about us. Jesus is coming, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer. That's that word overseer, the overseer of your souls. So in the same way, the pastor serves in some ways, you've heard the, uh, the phrase an under shepherd. Well, he's overseeing this body in a sense on earth, but ultimately we answer to him. And truthfully, folks, if we ever lose sight of that reality, we're already in trouble. It doesn't matter what polity that you put onto somebody. If they've decided they're going to do what they want, the way that they want, they're going to abuse whatever polity is in place. Whether that's elders, whether that's just a senior pastor and he's kind of the king, or whether that is a congregation. It doesn't matter. If you've decided, I'm going to do what I want to do the way I want, you're going to manipulate whatever system it is. The key is this, and Jesus says this, or Peter says this as a reminder that Jesus says this. He's the boss. And you're going to give account to him. And folks, you better remember that. One day you will stand before God and give account for the decisions you've made, for the things that you've said, for the way that you've reacted, for the way that you've responded, for the way that you've engaged even in the church. There is a day of accounting and it won't be to me. All of us will give account to the same one, Jesus. So we have to be ready for that day. And in that sense, it doesn't matter what you're gifting or where you fit in the church. We all got to stand before him. And so we all have to keep that in focus as we engage within the confines of the body, within or uh, with one another as a church. So, the key is, one of the keys is, are you willing to follow? As you see the truth of the word, are you willing to follow? And I'm thankful that truly as a body, we've watched God kind of guide our steps through the word. I remember several years ago, we were walking through 1 Corinthians and we got to that really hard text on hats. You remember that? And I said, come tonight and watch the train wreck. And, and many of you did and it was, and, uh, but when we finished, you know, what we, you know what we said? I said, Paul never one time doubts that women are involved in the service. Never, not once. There's never even a question that they somehow engage. I said, how are our women engaged in the service? And everybody said, they're not. And I said, I know, we got to fix that, right? And so now we have ladies read every Sunday night. Why? Because I think that's what the Bible calls us to do. They're a part of the body as well. Why wouldn't they participate in worship? And many of our ladies wouldn't necessarily be comfortable to come up front in the morning, and that's why we don't do that. But we do have them participate every single week. That's why I think the Bible dictates that. There are many other things like that that we've kind of adjusted over time. Why? Because I think that's what the Bible calls us to do. And we need to be open for that, ready for that. What is the Bible challenging us to do? And how is it challenging us 
to change. So he moves first from the description, then he moves into the appropriate conduct, and he begins with the first one for the overseer. It's not overseeing out of compulsion, not because you're being pressed into this, but you're doing it instead willingly. So first, you're not coerced, but you're willing. You do it of your own accord. You want to, dare we say. Now, remember that this is God's ministry. This is God's call that ultimately places a man in ministry. And yet, folks, it's not mysterious. I remember that in in college being challenged my freshman year. And if you're not sure you're called, you better have nothing to do with this. Well, to be honest with you, I grew up in a pastor's home. Never could have imagined really doing anything else. And so I, I, for a week, I was like, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'm not supposed to do it. Maybe my teacher's right. I'm in the wrong field, right? And uh, at the end of the week, I talked with my cousin. He was going through this kind of the same thing. And he said, you know what it comes down to? 1 Timothy 3.1, do you desire the office? Yeah, I do. He said, there you go. You're called. Let's go eat, you know? And when you're a freshman in college, that's how most conversations end. Let's go eat, Right? But the truth is, the call is that simple. Am I willing to serve? Am I yielded? Do I desire it? Okay. Okay. Then let's take the necessary steps to be trained. And I do think there's training so that the church isn't misguided. Uh, Many, many times you can see a congregation where a pastor reads a new book and suddenly that becomes the theme song for months, maybe weeks, maybe years, right? So you have to be balanced and you have to be well taught, instructed so that you can, by God's grace, lead God's people to a greater, better understanding of the word. The second one he challenges in the end of verse two, he says, as God would have you not out of greed for money, but eagerly. So you're not doing this out of a desire for gain. Now, this is one of those beautiful ironies because at this period of time, there may have been the opportunity for gain in that you would receive something even while you were doing something else, right? So you're engaging in preparing to teach the word, explain the word, but you also are doing something else. Remember, Paul, he was a tent maker. That's where we get that phrase from, but literally he made tents, and so he supported himself through that. But at times church at Philippi, he would be given money for his work in the gospel. So there's the potential here. There's the temptation maybe for these individuals to say, hey, I can get paid twice if I do this. Now, in our culture today, <laughs> we don't get paid twice for doing this. You know what I'm saying? I, and, unless you work two jobs. And for a little while, we did that, right? But, but that's not where we are now. And so it's a little easier to imagine that somebody's probably not doing this to get gain. Though, truthfully, if you put on a good enough show, you could draw a really big crowd and there is a little gain that comes with that. So we got to beware of that. And Peter warns against it. He goes on and gives a third one, not lording over those that God has entrusted to you, but you lead them by example or being an example to the flock. So you're not domineering. And folks, listen to me. That's the number one thing that you look for should you ever have to choose again. That's what you're looking for. You want to be careful that the person who comes has a longing to instruct, to 
trained to explain God's word, not to tell you, okay, when I get here, I'm going to change this, and I'm going to change this, and I'm going to change this. Truthfully, I think that's a hard thing on the church. A church is going to change. That's, that's a reality. It is going to change. If you think we haven't changed, I wish you could rewind six years, because we're different. But some of that is the change comes as God changes his people. The change develops as God is at work in his people. So you don't always have to come and say, hey, look, we're changing this. You guys don't get it, and we're going to fix you, right? We have to be careful of that as a leader. Sometimes as a leader, you're thinking about something for years, right? Or you've been reading on something for years. And your poor folks in the pew, you step up and say, hey, we're going to do this. And that is a discovery. They've never heard it in their lives. They haven't been thinking about that. Their mind isn't on the wheel that your little hamster wheel is, right? They don't, they're not thinking that way. But you've just dropped a bomb on them. So part of this is we don't, we don't uh, lead the congregation that way. We try and lead them. There's a care in the way that we lead them, a process, right, that we're working by God's grace. We're working God's people through. And I think truly, as, as, as you work through that process, people say, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we need to do that. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that, that is the right move, right? God gives a grace there, not just to a pastor, to God's people as we engage lovingly one another. There's a, there's a gift there, right? So, Last of all, if you look down at verse 4, the motivation. The motivation for this work. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive this crown, this unfading crown of glory. Now, a couple things are important. Number one, again, we come back to what? Our accountability, the person we answer to is the Lord. Number one, we got to give account to him someday. Are you ready to stand before him? Especially, obviously, he's talking to elders, pastors here. The genuine motivation is standing before Jesus one day. That's the issue. And he will appear. And when he appears, those that have been faithful, they will receive their reward for faithfulness. I think we've talked about this before, the crown of glory. I don't know that that is a, an actual crown, as much as it is the glory that accompanies faithfulness to the Lord. Um, so I don't know that we're talking about an actual crown. And if you look at many of the crowns throughout the Bible, it's a crown of righteousness, a crown of life. Life is the crown. Righteousness, right standing with God, that is the reward, right? For some of us, we think, man, I can't wait to you know, to get to heaven and get a crown. Looks like those old Persian crowns, big, you know, round thing, and it's got gold points coming off of that thing, right? For some people, that's the mindset. I I don't know that that is what Paul intended when he would write that or Peter here. I think the focus is more the reward is the glory we get with Jesus or from Jesus or from commendation from Jesus, right? I think that's the point. So he concludes now by turning from the elders to the response of the members, of the body, of the people. And he challenges them in verse 5, he says, in the same way. In the same way, with that same mentality, you who are younger, you be subject to the elders, to your 
leaders. Now, what's interesting here is he's already used this word subject several times throughout this epistle. He's used it to describe our response to the government. We're to be subject. We're to subordinate. We're to put ourselves under them to follow. Servants are to submit to their masters, wives to their husbands. He actually lists that one twice. And he says the angels are subordinate, the authorities, the powers. They're all subordinate to Jesus. So this word has been used many different times. Now he uses it again, and he uses it for the younger in the congregation to submit and follow leadership. Now, who are the younger? For, for some of us in the room, we say, man, hallelujah, I'm not younger, right? I don't have to listen, you know what I'm saying? Well, it's interesting how that's interpreted. Some suggest that the younger is actually describing new or recent converts. Some suggest it's younger men. Some suggest it's younger members within the Christian body. And some suggest it's those who are not quite as mature spiritually as their leaders, as their shepherds, as their pastors. So that last one kind of hits all of us, right? We all have to submit. And this is what he calls us to, is submission. Paul addresses this in Ephesians. You remember, he calls us all to submit. Submit to one another, right? Submission is another one of those characteristics that's supposed to define God's people. It's supposed to define you as a believer. Another one is humility, and he concludes with that in mind. And he says, all of you. So whether you think you fit into the younger or not, he says, now all of you, this is all of us, elders, younger, everybody, right? Clothe yourselves with humility. How? Toward one another. Be humble toward each other. Again, what a charge. And then he gives us this verse, a quote from the Old Testament, Proverbs 3.34. James uses this same quote in his writing, in his epistle. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And one of the things that I think is important for us to understand is that humility is, again, supposed to mark genuine followers of Jesus. You and I are supposed to be known as not citizens of our culture, but citizens of heaven who are marked by humility. True humility is not contrived. True humility is not self-degrading, right? True humility is not, I am just the worst, right? And, and all the while you're saying, I am just the worst. I hope somebody contradicts me. You know, I hope somebody steps up here and stands in the gap and helps me out, right? That, that's not genuine humility. Genuine humility recognizes my place before God, my dependence on Him, my standing with Him. And it expresses that reality by accepting my role, accepting my place, accepting where God has put me, accepting my circumstances. And truly, in some ways, it frees us. It frees us from this constant desire to grab what I think I deserve, right? There's power, position, recognition. I wish someone would recognize me, right? 
That can be so frustrating. You know what? That goes away with genuine humility. I know who I am and I know what my standing is with God and truly that's what matters and I'm okay with that. That's enough. That's enough, right? This is genuine humility. Humility expresses itself in this willingness to genuinely serve others even beyond my own self-interest. Folks, sometimes it's easy to serve others when it's good for me. It's easy to serve others when kind of I'm getting something back, right? Sometimes it's really hard to serve when you know I'm not getting a thing out of this. I get no benefit. I'm not even going to get recognized, you know. That is hard. It's hard for all of us. But that's genuine humility. And that's the humility our Lord demonstrates vividly in his earthly ministry, in the people that he cared for, in the people he took time out for, the people that he healed, the way that he died. Jesus demonstrates real humility. Do we demonstrate that? By God's grace, we can, we should. And the truth is, if we don't, God's resisting us. God resists us if we're proud. You ever feel like you keep smacking up against a wall all the time? You know, well, sometimes that's because of our pride. And we need to address it as exactly that. This is pride. So Peter, in this text, he calls elders to faithfully point believers to the word. Because that's where our hope is, even in the face of suffering, right? And he calls believers to follow. He calls us to humbly submit. I read a great little story in preparation for this uh, tonight. It's a story of two brothers. And I always identify with these stories that have brothers in them because I almost feel like this conversation could happen among brothers or maybe my brothers. But the story's told of these two guys and they, they both grew up on a farm and one of them decided, I'm not staying on the farm. I am not wasting my life on the farm anymore. So he went to college and then he earned a law degree and he became a partner at a prominent firm and in the huge state capital. And all the while, his brother stayed home on the family farm. So one day, the lawyer brother, he comes out to the farm to grace his brother with his presence. And he comes out and he meets his brother and he says to his brother, he says, why don't you go out and make a name for yourself and hold your head up high in the world like me? And his brother pointed out to the field as farmers, if you've ever known one, as they're prone to do, they use their crops and fields and tractors and animals as lessons for just about everything. It's really funny. But the farmer, he points out at the field to his brother and he says, see that field of wheat out there? He says, look, look very closely. He said, do you see only the empty heads stand up? He says, those that are well filled, they always bow low to the ground. Said differently, the branch that bears the most fruit is bent lowest to the ground. And folks, truly, that's the spirit of humility that should define God's people that know him and love him and seek to exalt him in the way that they engage one another. That should define us. Are we bowing low with one another? It's a hard call at times, but it is what should define us as his people. 
as a church, are we defined by humility? As leaders, are we defined by humility? Are you personally defined by humility in your interactions with others? If we went out and took a survey of four people you talked to this past week, would they say, man, whatever else they are, they're humble. That doesn't usually come up, does it? It should for God's people. Are we humble in our homes, in our work, in our neighborhood? Is that how we engage? By God's grace, we can, we should. 